Okay, thanks for joining everybody. Good to see you as always. Before we get started, a quick reminder, we will be off next Saturday over the Thanksgiving weekend. That is Saturday, November 26th. There will be no Bible study that evening, but we will return on Saturday, December 3rd, as usual, 8 p.m. Eastern time. Thank you for your patience. And of course, have a happy Thanksgiving holiday. And that's all I have. So we have another lesson from Robert. All right, that will begin as usual with the recording. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Then I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot accept, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he resides with you and will be in you. I will not abandon you as orphans, I will come to you. In a little while, the world will not see me any longer. But you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. You will know at that time that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. The person who has my commandments and obeys them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and will reveal myself to him. Lord, Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, What has happened that you are going to reveal yourself to us, and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and take up residence with him. The person who does not love me does not obey my words, and the word you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. I have spoken these things while staying with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything, and will cause you to remember everything I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace... I give to you. I do not give it to you as the world does. Do not let your hearts be distressed or lacking in courage. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, because the Father is greater than I am. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no power over me. But I am doing just what the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Get up. Let us go from here. The Gospel of John, chapter 14. Okay, so that is the second half of chapter 14. We covered the first half last time. And I am going to focus on the main themes. There are many repeated themes. And what we just read, uh, I mean, repeated to what we've covered in prior sessions, and I will not prioritize those because, you know, they have been discussed. So let me start with the very first statement that is repeated in many different ways throughout the passage, where Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. I think that uh, for our modern ears, this is perhaps a difficult statement. Right. Uh, to love and to obey, we don't normally put them in the same sentence. Uh, in fact, I think many people today might find this kind of offensive. But uh, let's explore this statement then in some detail so we really understand what it means. First, we have to discuss the background to this. And I know that I've discussed some of this in a prior session, but I want to go into more detail this time around, which is covenantal terms. Okay. That the word, words like love and hate. Take, it, take on a different meaning 
when they're part of a, of a covenant. A covenant is a sort of contract, an ancient uh, Near East uh, contract. And just like our contracts nowadays, it generally follows a certain format. You know, it has a structure to it and it uses particular language. So just to give you some modern examples, right? Think of a bill of sale. A bill of sale pretty much always follows the same structure. You're going to have the parties. You're going to have the item that is being transferred. You're going to have the price. You're going to have signatures on the bottom. Um, you know, you would recognize a bill of sale before you even read it just from the format. Uh, and perhaps it's just because I'm an attorney, but I really think that goes for anyone. Um, there's also, let me give you an example of specialized language. If you have ever read a deed, you know, it has very funky terminology. And that's because we've been carrying old English phrases forward for 600 years or what have you. Um, so if you've ever read a lease, I mean, a lease, a deed is what I meant to say. It probably has um, a phrase that says something like, uh, you know, to hold, um, uh, you know, to hold it, grantee, grantees, heirs, successors, and assigns forever. Why do we even say that? That means that really is code language to say in fee simple, I'm transferring this property for you and I'm not keeping any kind of future interest in it. Whatever. Okay, so keep those examples in mind. The, the reason I, I say that is because if you are inexperienced with deeds and you read that language, you may not realize that it actually has a technical meaning. Well, what are we missing when we read ancient covenants? Well, um, I think there's at least two things that we miss very often. One, the idea of blessings and curses. Okay. In this, in this contract, uh, the things you will get out of it are called blessings. The things that will happen to you if you breach the contract are called curses. So notice that in covenantal, in a covenantal context, the words blessings and curses don't actually have a spiritual connotation. They're very much the benefits of your bargain or the consequences if you break it. Um, we, I think, over-spiritualize those terms in some context, okay? The other important thing to keep in mind is that to love is to follow the deal, is to do you, what you said you would do, and to hate is to break the deal, is to not do what you said you would do. And so if you love the other party, you do what you said you would do, and you get the blessings. If you hate the other party, you don't do what you said you would do, and you get the curses. Now, why is this even relevant? Well, because uh, God made a covenant with the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And, and God made several covenants throughout the Old Testament, right? You get Adam, you get uh, Noah, you get Abraham and David. Those would be the main ones. There's other ones in there, but those would be certainly the main ones. And then God is making a new covenant, a new deal with all the people who believe in Jesus in the New Testament. And it is called that expressly, right? In Jeremiah, the, the terminology is the New Covenant. Then in the book of Hebrews, which is in the, in the New Testament, it is called the Better Covenant. Okay. So uh, I, I point that out to say, I'm not making up this whole covenant idea. This is very much in the Bible expressly. So, okay. Well, like in any covenant, then to love is to obey. That's literally what it means. In fact, in covenantal language, uh, we could say that it, 
you know, to say, if you love, you will obey is a tautology because that's literally what it means to, to love is to obey. Okay. And notice that in the passage we read today, you very much get the covenantal structure. If you love, you get the blessings, right? If you obey, you get the blessings. And if you disobey, you get the curses. Um, so it's very important context for us to not like overly spiritualize these terms. Or in the case of love and hate, I suppose we have a tendency to over, uh, I'm going to make up a word, but emo emotionalize them. <laughs> we turn them into just emotions. And that's really not what the text is saying in this case. Now, as a disclaimer, um, I am by no means saying that every use of the words love and hate or blessings and curses in the Bible are in this context of a covenant. That is not that is clearly not the case. But sometimes they are. And I think that this is one of those cases. Okay. So with that in mind, very much Jesus is saying, here's the deal. Okay, here's the deal. Uh, do your part and I do my part. And I know particularly if you're Protestant, that that probably makes you uncomfortable. And I am Protestant as well. I'm not, I'm not trying to have some edgy take that denies sola fide or something like that. Um, but at the same time, I cannot deny that what we have here is a covenant. Um, and we have our side of the bargain, which is to believe in Jesus. Okay. Um, now, I'm sorry if you guys can hear that. My dog is going crazy. I have a puppy, and I guess she has decided it's playtime, but she'll get tired in just a, a few seconds. Um, okay. Um, now, let's look at the statement from another perspective. I think that uh, faith implies obedience, okay? And faith is, is very closely tied to this idea of love. So let me, let me give you an example uh, of what I mean. Let's say that I am invited to go bungee jumping and I am standing there in front of the precipice or whatever, you know, uh, I'm standing at the bridge or whatever it is that I'm going to jump off of. and I am overcome with fear and I can't do it because I'm thinking there's no way this rope can hold me or it's not going to snap back correctly. It's just not going to work. And so I don't jump, right? I, I, I step back and I go home. Why did I not follow through? Well, I did not follow through because I did not have faith. I did not have trust that, um, Matt, can you hear that? Is that real loud? My dog's. No, I can't hear anything at all, actually. Oh, so okay. You should be good. Cool. That makes me feel so much better because they're going crazy. Okay, good deal. Then I will stop worrying about it. Um, well, so the reason I, I step back and I, and, I, and I don't jump, right, is because I don't trust the rope. But, and, and the converse is true, right? Like, essentially, I will follow through if I really do have faith. So what, what am I saying here? That to say, hey, if you have faith in me, you will obey, that actually follows logically so. Like if I really believe Jesus, then I believe that what he says is good is actually good and worth doing. What he says is bad is really bad and worth avoiding. And if I don't obey then, it's really because I don't have faith. Okay. So the the obedience is directly connected to whether I really believe Jesus or not. Um, and and so then that statement, if you love me, you will obey, should really not come as shocking. One is the natural outgrowth of the other. Um, then the passage moves into 
really kind of its key motif, which is this idea of the advocate, of the Holy Spirit. And let me start with a brief discussion of the translation of that word. The Greek word that is used throughout the passage, there's one time that it actually says Holy Spirit, but throughout the passage, it is using the Greek word paraclete. And the word paraclete is very difficult to translate into English because we don't have an equivalent word. So we have to get pretty close. Now, this is not unusual with languages, right? When you're translating a language, sometimes you have a perfectly equivalent word and sometimes you just don't, and you got to get as close as you can. Well, if you, if, you know, if somebody listening today or participating today is reading a different translation, not the NET, you, maybe you have a different word, right? You, it, yours may say helper or counselor or comforter. Why is that? because of this, because of the fact that we don't have an exact equivalent, so we have to get pretty close, and translators will pick different words. And honestly, we could get into that discussion of what is the closest English word to paraclete in Greek, uh, but it's probably not um, it's probably not the discussion that people came here to have, right? <laughs> because at the end of the day, we're all admitting that the, that the there is no equivalent, then okay, get as close as you can. Instead of that, why don't we actually do a deeper dive into the paraclete, into the Holy Spirit, and then whatever we, we choose to call him in English doesn't really matter because we're clear on what we mean. I, um, I have a, a, like a little chart on the, the blog that and I know that most people are just listening and they're not going to look at that and that's fine, but it's actually really useful for once. It's really, really handy, um, but I'll go ahead and, and say it out loud. Here are the similarities between Jesus and the paraclete. And these are all in John or uh, there's one of these that would be in first John in one of the letters, not, not the gospel of John, but except for the one, the one thing, everything else is within the gospel of John. Okay, they're both given by the Father. They're both with and in the disciples. They're both not received by the world. They're both not known by the world, only believers. They're both not seen by the world, only believers. They're both sent by the Father. They both teach. They both come from the Father into the world. They both give testimony. They both convict the world. They both speak not from self, but from what is heard. They both glorify their sender, both reveal, disclose, and proclaim. They both lead into fullness of truth. They're both the spirit of truth, or they are truth. And they're both a paraclete, mostly in the sense of an advocate, in the forensic sense. Okay. okay. Why do I go through the trouble of going through all that? Because this highlights the point that this chapter is making, that the paraclete is a continuation of Jesus, right? Jesus is saying, hey, I am leaving, but I'm going to send you one who is like me, who's going to keep doing all the things that I was doing, okay? So there's really kind of no break in Jesus' presence, except there for a little while uh, between his crucifixion and, and resurrection, Right. They, so there's like this this small gap of darkness where the disciples are left destitute, but it's a very short gap. And then Jesus returns first is his resurrected self, and then he sends the Holy Spirit. Okay. And this idea of this continuation is just absolutely key. 
Now, the, the Holy Spirit, in fact, it, he is so much part of God, so much part of the Trinity, so much another person in the Trinity that uh, there's a letter written by Paul. Um, this would be in Romans chapter eight, where Paul just very loosely goes back and forth between the following terms. And this really is striking if you think about it, between the spirit, the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, Christ, and then back to the spirit. Okay. Why? Why does Paul have this level of kind of looseness with language? Because to have the spirit is to have Christ, is to have God the Father. They they all act in concert. They all, all act on behalf of one another, right? And this is the key point of the passage. Jesus is saying, I am leaving, but I am sending you my, quote unquote, continuation. And I don't mean that in an ontological sense. I mean that in a, in a functional sense, of course. Um, okay. So, in, in, again, this, this is really, this is, this is the key, to, particularly to chapter 14 and, and this second half. Now, we learned some things about the paraclete. Uh, about the Holy Spirit or the Spirit. I'll use all three words inter interchangeably. Um, and we're told that he is the invisible successor to Christ, right? Because Christ could be seen by everyone. Christ was a, a, a regular guy in the sense that he was fully human. Um, people could see him, could touch him, could talk to him. Well, now Jesus is gone and only the believers will experience the Holy Spirit, which I think should prompt us to ask at the very least one question, if not multiple questions, but how is the mission of Jesus? There, my mic changed real quick. Uh, is it back, I think? Yeah, it cut out for just a word or two, but you're, okay. you're good now. Perfect. Um, you know, we should be asking, well, if non-believers cannot see Jesus, how will they ever become believers, right? It does seem a little bit odd that the Spirit can only be seen and experienced by believers. Um, well, and here's where I want to, to include a motif that is not in chapter 14. So I am, I am acknowledging that I'm going a little bit off script here, but I'm staying very much within what the Bible teaches. And I just want to I just kind of want to put the pieces together. Um, if you read the letters of Paul, Paul very much brings in the idea that this, the successor to Christ is the church, right? The church is called the body of Christ, Jesus' body. And so we actually get this beautiful continuation of Christ where Christ, when he was earthly, I mean, when he when he was on the earth, of course, he had a body. He, has a, he had a spirit, just like everyone does. Um, well, now that Christ is not on the earth, uh, since his ascension, he still has actually a body and a spirit, the spirit being the Holy Spirit, his body being the church. Um, and I'm not going not gonna to read all the verses about this, but Paul is very, very clear on this matter. Um, he and it's actually quite beautiful. Paul talks about how all believers are different parts of the body. And so we have different roles. The spirit gives us different gifts. Um, and there is no, no shame in having these different roles. One is not better than the other. Uh, we all are part of one body. 
Um, and so, you know, it's not like, um, no, not like <laughs> uh, an eye is any less than a hand. You know, it's not like a hand is any less than a foot and, and so on, because we all uh, form part of the body of Christ. So that is the, that is kind of the full picture that's being painted here, that the successors to Christ are the Holy Spirit, um, who is in believers, and then the church, who are the visible presence of Christ to the world now. Um, of course, that also creates a strong sense of duty, right? The church has a job to do. The church, the church has to act like Christ and continue his mission, empowered and indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Um, I know this sounds very mystical, like as I say it out loud. It, I don't know. It, I, I realize that if, if you've never thought of this or heard this, it may sound a little bit strange. But I think the more you think about it, it it's really quite beautiful. Uh, I particularly encourage you to read the verses by Paul, um, you know, in case, in case you're interested. Um, the next major theme that I would like to discuss is the fact that the paraclete is going to teach and remind, right? And the, the exact verse, uh, let, me, let me go back and, and read it out loud. Um, it says, but the advocate, that's the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and will cause you to remember everything I said to you. Right? I want to spend a little bit of time on the sentence. Why? I think it can be misinterpreted. In, in, and I think there's a big movement today. Uh, I'm not going to name it by name because I'm trying to be ecumenical and all that good stuff. But that perhaps takes this the wrong way. Um, give me one second. I am back. Um, okay. So it says, we'll teach you everything and we'll cause you to remember everything. What does this really mean? Um, I think we should be asking at least two questions. One is a rather simple one and one is a little bit trickier. Um, the easy one is, is, he, is Jesus just talking to the disciples or is he referring to all believers? And the context, I think, makes very clear that Jesus is talking about all believers. Why? Because literally like two sentences above, Jesus says, anyone who believes in me will be loved by the Father and the Father will take up residence with him. Okay. So this is not just about the 12. This is all of us or everyone who, who believes in Jesus. Okay. So what does it mean that the Holy Spirit is going to teach us, quote, everything and remind us of, quote, everything I said to you? What is the scope of this? Like the things that come to my mind as far as questions, are we, is the Holy Spirit then going to lead us into new revelation stuff that's not in the Bible? If we want to take this one step further, is the Holy Spirit going to lead us into revelation that even contradicts the Bible? And I can just say, well, the Holy Spirit told me so. And I think that the answer to both of those questions is no. Um, number one, we actually uh, have to acknowledge that that last clause where it says everything I said to you does not necessarily only apply to the reminding action, right? It just says, we'll teach everything and remind you of everything 
that I said to you. Well, that, that, that part I said to you could actually modify both actions. So we could literally read it, and this would be grammatically completely fine. We could be read it as, I will, the Holy Spirit will teach you everything I said to you and will remind you of everything I said to you. And honestly, I think that that is the correct interpretation. Why? Because of the context. Keep in mind that in this context, Jesus is telling his disciples, keep my commandments, keep my commandments, keep my commandments. So it would be rather strange if in the midst of this, of saying, keep my commandments, Jesus is also saying yes. And then later on, the paraclete will teach you different commandments. It really does not seem to fit the context. There's two other good reasons why I think that what I'm telling you is true. One. Certainly, his his Jewish audience, I think, would have would have taken this word of teaching, uh, given their halakha tradition. And forgive me if I'm mispronouncing that word. Um, halakha was the rules that that the Jewish people came up with, that they were not directly in the scripture, but they were based in the scripture, and they were really more practical applications, right? Like the like the Bible said, keep the Sabbath. And then they would take that and then they would make up all these rules like, well, then you cannot walk uh, more than two miles from home. I'm making that up, but they did have a distance and you cannot pick up anything heavier than this much and so forth. But notice that the Halakha does not really come up with new themes. So they would not have come up with a completely new big rule like also keep the first day of the week holy or something. No. Now, all they were doing was giving practical application to those major rules that were in the Bible, to those major themes. And so, even if we want to take this word teaching as, as, as uh, far-reaching as we wanted to, it would still just mean teaching practical application of what Jesus is teaching, by no means adding some other uh, major motifs that are not there. And finally... In 1 John, so another letter written by John, um, well, or I should say a, a letter written by John as opposed to the gospel written by John, um, he uses almost the exact same phrasing. He says the Holy Spirit will, quote, teach you about all things, close quote. And when you read it in context, um, it is a passage of, of 1 John where, where John keeps saying, uh, and I'll quote, as for you, what you have heard from the beginning must remain in you. And he keeps going to this idea of residing and remaining, right? Remain in what you have been taught, remain in what you have been taught. That is like the thing he's going back to. And it's in that context that he says, the Holy Spirit will teach you about all things. So I think it's manifestly clear that that means the Holy Spirit will um, teach us what the Bible says, it not, you know, this idea of everything doesn't mean really going beyond that except possibly practical applications. Perhaps I'm the only one who cares about that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how, how engaging you guys found that discussion, but I always try to be very clear. You know, th there are words like everything or all that are very dependent on the context. And this is not just in the Bible. This is always true. Like, Think of just about any context in which in which you use the word all, and you probably don't really mean all in a technical sense of like absolutely everything all. Um, I wish I had some good examples in mind. I'll come up with one here in a minute.
Okay. The last thing that I want to mention is um, Jesus saying, peace, I leave with you. Okay. And in fact, he says, my peace, I leave with you. He, he emphasizes, by the way, I, I think I've mentioned this in the past, but what Jews did at the time is the way they would emphasize an idea is they would repeat it, uh, particularly in writing is what they would do. But, but of course, also when they spoke, we, um, you know, in our culture, we would emphasize something by uh, particularly adding an exclamation mark if it's in writing, right? Or if I'm speaking, I would say it more loudly. Um, but what they would have done is they would have said it twice. So that's why you see so much repetition in the Bible. This is very much part of the culture. But when you see something repeated multiple times, you should keep in mind, oh, he really wants me to get this. Like this is their way of putting the exclamation mark or italicizing the words, you know, those are the things we do today. Okay. Well, so what does Jesus mean when he says, peace, I live with you, I, I, I leave with you? Well, peace can take different meanings, right? One meaning, of course, is the absence of conflict. That would be the meaning we would be applying if we were in a war context or even an interpersonal or human relationship context. Like, um, you know, if I, if I have been, I don't know, if I'm getting divorced and I said it's been mostly a peaceful divorce, that would mean me and my spouse have not been fighting a whole lot. Or if we say, you know, there's now peace between Ukraine and Russia, it of course would mean that the war has ended one way or the other. Well, but that's not the only meaning of peace, right? The other very common meaning, and this was common at the time and is common today, is a sense of contentment or tranquility in the midst of a, of a situation. Right? Uh, like I may say, um, you know, I've made peace with something or I'm at peace. Like perhaps I've suffered some kind of loss. Uh, let's say that I had lost a loved one and, and I say, I know it's been very hard, but I have peace now. Now I have a sense of tranquility about it. Um, this idea of peace is also uh, very much part of Jewish culture, well, at the time, and it is today, I suppose, um, because it had eschatological uh, connotations, the idea that in the end, in the end, there would be peace. Uh, there would be no more war. There would be no more trouble of any kind. God would overcome all of that, and there would be peace. Um, and as Christians, right, we believe that will happen, quote unquote, in, in heaven. Uh, and I, I put quotes on that because we could also just say by in the new earth, at the, at the end, at the end of the story, whatever word you want to use, there will be peace. And I think that this is quite clearly what Jesus is saying. What, what, or let me rephrase that. This idea of tranquility amidst the trouble is what Jesus means. Uh, not the idea that we will not have conflict. Jesus never, never promises that believers will not see conflict. In fact, Chapter 14 is predicated on the fact that we will have trouble, right? This is a farewell speech where Jesus is saying, do not fear. I leave you an advocate. You know, I'm going to be with you till the end. Well, why would you say any of that if when Jesus departs, the, you know, believers are just going to have a great time. There's going to be no conflict of any kind. That doesn't make sense. And of course, if you expand you know, your focus to the rest of the, the gospel of John. Again, Jesus is talking about people must persevere. People will oppose you. 
you may end up in bad terms with your own family. You may be excommunicated from your religious community. I mean, the assumption is you will have trouble. So certainly Jesus does not mean peace as in you will not have conflict. No, what he means is you should have tranquility. You should have, you know, a sense of contentment in the midst of the trouble. Why? Because there is peace in the end, right? Christ has overcome. He has, he has opened the door to heaven. And we know that that is in the end uh, where we will go. And that should give us strength and peace for now when things are not uh, so good. So um, since I ended a little bit early, I, I would like to mention that the end of chapter 14 goes back to what I was discussing last time, this idea of, of Jesus very purposely laying down his, his own life. Uh, you know, he makes it explicit at the end of chapter 14 that uh, the prince of this world has no claim over him. He has no power over him. And he says, but I am doing just what the father commanded me, right? So nobody's really taking Jesus' life. He's laying it down. And I just thought I'd point, it that, point that out since we discussed it some last time. Um, and with that, and I know that, I'm sorry, I finished a little early today. Maybe there will be questions. Um, I would like to open it up for questions. Sure. Thanks, Robert. As usual, everybody, if you would like to ask a question or raise a point of discussion or just have a chat with us, uh, type question in the chat. Just the word question will suffice. I'll be happy to bring you in. Uh, I would like to, as I, as I always enjoy seeing if I can uh, pull a little bit of controversy out of you because I appreciate that you're very um, fair and measured in respecting all perspectives. Um. But I, I and I like to hear the opposing perspectives that you f feel are wrong. I suppose. <laughs> uh, so you mentioned the, the this this clause or this um, this concept that the Holy Spirit will teach and remind of everything and yeah. and your understanding of of all and everything. Uh, what are the opposing views that you're referencing when you? I gather you're trying to be a little bit politically correct and. What's the best argument for those opposing views? Well, I, so I, there's a couple of things that I'm thinking there's, there's one particular movement that I suppose I don't mind. Um, I don't mind naming, uh, because I, I do think it's dangerous. And if I'm about to offend somebody, go ahead and comment and tell me that I'm wrong. And that's fine. I'm the one asking, you know, I, <laughs> I, so I'm, I'm provoking here. That's but, your, uh, yeah, there, there's people nowadays who claim a whole lot of authority, particularly in what's called the New Apostolic Reformation, the NAR movement, um, where they, they claim to be apostles in, in a very heightened sense of the word, where they they have authority and they receive all, all of this special revelation, and they can even essentially command other believers uh, even more so than an organized church like the Catholic Church might do. They might say, hey, I've received a revelation about you specifically, and this is what you got to do. And they, they very much claim that authority. Hmm. Um, and sometimes their advice is very questionable in the sense that it does not align with the Bible. Um, and I, I think that we ought to oppose that. Uh, I, I don't think that, 
I, but, but what I mean by that, let me rephrase that is, I think that that is wrong. I don't think that people will be receiving special revelations that contradict the Bible. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, that's, it's both scriptural, but it has political components mm -hmm. or political extensions, which I know is not the theme of this discussion. So I don't mean to direct it that way, but I appreciate the clarification because I wasn't really aware of that. Uh, yeah, th this movement actually is is quite huge, particularly because here's where I'm really going to get spicy. Uh, they make some of the more popular songs, contemporary Christian songs. Mm -hmm. And because their music has spread far and wide, then their theology has tended to follow. Wow. Um, yeah, it, it's big Christian rock enemy of. Uh, yeah. True biblical understanding. <laughs> All right. And so, and I'll leave that comment at that. That's really going to get me in hot water. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, of course, you know, if you're in other traditions, like uh, even the, you know, the Catholic Church, where the Pope can say things that are inerrant in their view, I think that a verse like this would would lend itself to that Catholic result. But really, I'm not. I wasn't concerned about the Catholics when I was trying to set this straight. I was really more thinking of the NAR movement. Okay. So again, I'm sorry if I Well, uh, can I, since we have plenty of time and I, I see Brian, maybe you want to talk, but uh, if, if more people want to join in on this topic or any other, again, just type question in the chat. I'll be happy to get to you. Can you, can you stick up for their perspective just a little bit? It, or do you, do you think that there's a scriptural basis of any sort to do so? Or are you saying that you think it's a, a something of a power grab? So, um, I can, I can kind of align with them to a certain extent in the sense that, um, there are two views when it comes to the gifts of the spirit, right? And, and they, they, now I'm kind of going off topic a little bit, but this would fall within this general discussion of, of what gifts is the Holy Spirit given today. And there's generally two perspective continuationism. That, that says we have the same gifts today that people had back in biblical times, so we could do miracles and all that thing and all that stuff. Or there's cessationism that says, no, some of those gifts ceased, they ended uh, with pretty much with the original apostles. Okay. And most people are somewhere in the middle. Um, it, look, I have no issues with somebody receiving word from God. I really don't. Uh, I've never, I never have, but maybe, maybe really somebody has to receive the vision, whatever. But, um, so I, I can go up to that extent with them, but if that new revelation does not clearly align with the scripture, then it's clearly false. Like the scripture is at the end of the day, uh, you know, the judge of everything. Um, so that's the most I can say for their perspective, but they take it way far. I'm telling you, this movement is, is quite out there. Uh, Brian has uh, an implied offer to be the bad guy on this topic. So I will allow you the opportunity if you choose to take it, Brian. But if you don't, that's fine, too. We can move on to a different topic. Well, I was just going to uh, name names just, you know, in case Robert didn't want to be unpopular. Can you guys hear me? Yes, sir. OK. Yeah. Did, did you have any additional thoughts on it? Um, well, I would I would go even harder than him on the new apostolic movement there. Even the the basic premise of their movement is is unbiblical um, and the Bible and apostle. There's the general meaning of the word as one who is sent out, which is the meaning Jesus uses when he chooses the 12. By the time Paul is writing and by the time the book of Acts is written, 
it's taken on a the, the meaning of the word has taken on a, a more narrow meaning but the membership is much broader it when if you read uh acts chapter 1 verse uh 20 through 22 when they choose judas's a replacement um at, to be one of the 12 the qualifications are you had the job description is to be an eyewitness to jesus resurrection the qualification is having been with them from the beginning since john since john's baptism so they can be an eyewitness to his teachings and pass them on by the time paul is writing in first corinthians 9 he says am i not free am i not an apostle have i not seen jesus our lord so the definition of an apostle would be an eyewitness to the risen jesus in a, in a broad sense but to be a member of the 12 you have to be a be a direct disciple but it's that eyewitness function and you kind of see that in first corinthians 15 when paul goes through all the people who saw the risen jesus so an apostle by definition is more of a is more of a historical eyewitness and in that when we when we use these terms like witness and testimony and stuff like that in a biblical sense it has kind of a religious meaning but in the first century it it it, it was it didn't have any religious connotation it, it was historiographical like if you read uh greek and roman historians like herodotus and thucydides and others they they kind of use this language that you find in the bible about eyewitness testimony and and testifying to what they'd seen and all that stuff and so the meaning that we apply today to a, to we we kind of have this cargo coat mentality when it comes to things like our testimony and and witnessing in a religious sense where we just kind of divorce it from its original meaning and apply this sort of churchy meaning um but uh, the way that the where that relates to the new apostolic movement is they've completely divorced it from its biblical meaning they just mean like a you know a, a a high-ranking religious authority who supposedly has a direct connection with God, which would would be more akin to a prophet. But in the New Testament, apostles outrank prophets, um, which is a whole other discussion that uh, with with different connotations. But so that's uh, those are my thoughts on that. I have other thoughts about the study if we want to sure yeah i don't have any other requests to speak but i will remind everyone if you'd like to join in just type question in the channel bring you in uh but if you have additional thoughts we have plenty of time assuming robert you weren't trying to get into some other topic no no no. uh let, yeah let's go for yeah. it yeah i don't want to monopolize it but just quick a quick observation uh it, it kind of really we the uh the coming of the paraclete relates back to the the earlier discussion about uh in my father's house, how there are the new temple, like the spirit is basically the the new covenant equivalent of the of the Shekinah glory cloud that indwelt the temple. Um, Paul, like elsewhere, calls them the uh, the church, the 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 temple of the living God, and so it's it, the you have those parallels, but also before we even get to that and he kind of he he sort of makes oblique reference to the devil at the end of it traditionally called satan in hebrew which was which means accuser the sense is of a prosecutor in a court of law um, and that's kind of the cosmic struggle between humanity and the forces of darkness that satan accuses us of being unworthy of god's love 
And you see that in Job and, and other other parts of the, the Old Testament, um, particularly Zechariah 3, which anybody with any interest in this should should read if you haven't. It's like a courtroom setting where Satan is accusing the high priest Joshua, and then the angel of Yahweh is there as his advocate. Like So basically, what you like in John 14, where he talks about the paraclete, you have this kind of this counterpoint to Satan, the accuser, who is prosecuting mankind before in the presence of God, the paraclete, it, it's not a, it's an, it would be anachronistic to say it's a direct, a, the direct translation would be defense attorney and prosecutor, because they didn't really have that system back then. But if we were going to do, if we were going to do a modern paraphrase, that would, that would do, you kind of have that, but he lives inside of us and gives us a new nature so that we can stand before God. But uh, anyway, just a, just a point of observation and I will uh, step aside and let somebody else talk. Sure. Thank you, Brian. Did you have any thoughts on Brian's thoughts, Robert? No, I, I think that's very much the case. I clearly, I'm not very good at judging time. I, perhaps I should have included that. I, I, I only didn't discuss it because I thought I would run out of time like I normally do, but he's absolutely correct that there is this forensic uh, connotations to this is of the accuser and the defense all that hmm. I mean again everything he pointed out we we would catch that in the text if if we had been there at the time you know with their context and all that um, so yeah thank you very much so okay um, with the remaining time if you want to take it in any particular direction areas you feel like maybe you skipped on we could do that or I have a follow-up question on what we discussed earlier, not necessarily to put you on the hook for creating controversy, but just uh, another point of clarification on something that you said. Yeah, go for it. You mentioned, uh, well, you were talking about this this topic uh, or this concept of receiving the word of God and that being a distinction between, um, say, your own personal experience and what these uh, uh, ideological opponents of yours claim to have experienced. And you said, you correct me if I'm wrong, because it's your perspective. You said you have not received the word of God. They claim to, or they say, is that correct? Yes. What, what I mean by that, because I do think that in a sense, we've all received the word of God because I believe the Bible to be the word of God. But what, uh -huh. I, what I was talking about was I, I have not received, I've never had some like dream or experience where God like audibly spoke to me or, or an experience of that sort. And these people in the, in this movement, they, they claim that actually regularly, like, like too regularly, <laughs> but I have not had that experience. Do we know from a biblical sense what that is supposed to be like? I guess my question is how, from a scriptural sense, do we differentiate between what could be authentically receiving the word of God versus you could, if you want to be cynical or you could say fraudulent, um, but if you want to be charitable, you could say mistakenly believing you have received the word of God. Well, we do have instances, both in the Old and the New Testament, where God really does speak to somebody very much directly. In the Old Testament, it's clear, like God will tell one of his prophets, go tell the Israelites the following, and it's like word for word. In the New Testament, uh, we don't have as many instances of that. Um, you know, in the Gospel of John, we've seen the God speak audibly a couple of times, actually just to one time, I suppose. Um, 
And then Paul, the apostle Paul, has this encounter with Jesus that, you know, it's when Jesus is already when Jesus has already ascended. So it is sort of a spiritual encounter, um, but where Jesus speaks to him directly. Um, most of the time, however, that that's not the experience that most believers have. Uh, generally, it, it's more the Spirit leading us into truth, right? That it, the way we would normally say this, if you're reading the word, if you are meditating on it, if you're praying, then um, this, you know, this word will will have fruit and you, and you will be led into thinking the right thing. Um, but but for most people, it's not like God is going to like audibly tell them, hey, you need to marry this person or you should go take that job or something of that sort. Um, I just don't want to deny the possibility that God today could speak to somebody audibly. I don't think it happens often, but could it? Sure. It's, it's my take on that. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, well, yeah, that's a very bright line, actually, because if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying an, an audible command in the same way that you hear me right now, you would hear some sort of command from God as opposed to, I don't know if like telepathically is the right word, but you hear it in your mind. You know what I mean? It's something, yeah. it's like a, abstract sense rather than a measurable audible sound transferring through space in the same way that we communicate with each other vocally that that's a yeah. pretty bright line that i think is uh clearly drawn i i was just i i just had interest in that it's like uh the, the basis on which we judge what is a legitimate i suppose revelation versus what is uh what is a crazy person what is a person who's wrong you know yeah. Um, you know, I think it's, it's tricky, um, or at least for me, it's because I'm not a full cessationist. Like, I, I don't take the hard line that no, nobody hears from God in this, like, very grand and specific way anymore. But I do think it's rare, and I think we should be suspicious. The Bible does caution us to, quote unquote, test the spirits. If anybody claims to have that kind of revelation from God, we we actually don't have a responsibility to take to take it at face value. It's actually mm. the opposite. We the Bible calls us to discern, and so I I should look at that person and are they really a believer? What's kind of their their track record? It, does this align with what the Bible says? Um, so by no means should we just take that at face value. That okay. much I am certain of. And uh, I think somebody had a comment. Oh, yeah, M says she has a comment about it. So go ahead and chime in if you are oh, ready. Hey guys. Hey. I just wanted to say, um, you know, sometimes in these conversations about like how and when God speak to, speaks to us, I feel like often we forget to think about like <clears throat> who is God and why might he or might not he speak to someone. So, for example, uh, you give you said that happened very commonly in the Old Testament, less so in the New Testament, even less so now, like we're not as a society receptive to that idea very much so if you think of god as like a logical sentient being he's not really going to communicate with us likely in a way that we wouldn't receive well and so you know just from a like looking at it from a what do we see in reality perspective i think god approaches cultures and peoples like where he's able to and where they're receptive so Thanks. basically what i'm saying is like i agree that i wouldn't rule out personally i wouldn't rule out like the possibility of god audibly or physically speaking to someone but 
we're not really expecting that or or we're very skeptical of it today. Do you have thoughts on that, Robert? I, I think she's correct. I, I, yeah, I, honestly, I agree. I, um, you know, I hear more of these kind of miraculous things going on in other places of the world, and perhaps that is the, the, the cultural difference. I, I don't know. I'm sure that people listening today are going to be a little bit frustrated by how wishy-washy I'm being. I, that that's really all I can say on on this matter. I, I am open to it, but I think we should be skeptical, and um. You know, and that, that, that's really fence rider Robert roast him in the chat. <laughs> I know. No, I, I appreciate that. I, I want to be fair to uh, all interpretations or at least understand them at their best. Not necessarily that all are equally well argued or equally valid, but I appreciate the commitment to taking them at their best as opposed to just uh, trashing them at their weakest. <laughs> But uh, I would say, be careful, though. I mean, for anybody listening, be careful of these movements that are based, that are really dependent on these special revelations. If your branch of Christianity is built on somebody's special revelation, like if it's not really built on the Bible, but somebody's new take on it because God told them, um, I don't think that ever ends well. And I, that's probably the spiciest thing I've said, but I, I gotta say it. <laughs> All right, uh, Denby, you have some thoughts, and thank you, M. By the way, uh, Denby, go uh, yeah, ahead. Thank, yes, yeah, th uh, thank you. Um, so I was just gonna say, um, uh, I think I think one of the you know, the things that I, I uh, that's interesting about this is I think a lot of people actually have the idea that um, a road to Damascus moment is the like the way. Uh, to be brought into faith, you know, into you know, like so, uh, like a vision of Jesus in front of you. Um, I think that's actually a stumbling block for a lot of people. That they they think that that is the way to to know Jesus. Um, but I think that um, the uh, the story of Elijah looking for God is a lot more to the point. You, you, I'm sure Robert knows this very well as well that. You know, there's all these, um, big, you know, things that seem like big signs of God present, God's presence, like an earthquake, you know, a raging storm, you know, thunder and lightning, but God isn't any in any of those places. And it's when um, Elijah gets to the mouth of the cave, and it's in the silence. That's where God is, and um, I think that's actually. Uh, more the way that more people uh, find God and find Jesus is that way. Um, but there are certainly, you know, examples like, you know, uh, important examples of people who did have a vision, like William Wilberforce. You know, he had a, a vision of uh, kind of like a Hieronymus Bosch like style, you know, the Garden of Earthly Delights kind of. Ter you know, terrible vision of the decadence of the people around him. And that's what, um, you know, sparked his, um, you know, anti-slavery movement was, you know, this. And, you know, much like, um, but on the other hand, I think Robert Newton was more of that quiet, slow realization. You know, even though he says, you know, what's blind, was blind, but now is see it's more 
the Elijah way than the than the William Wilberforce one. Anyway, I just thought that that might uh, help you. I hope, at least I hope it does. Yeah, I, I appreciate all these discussions of um, some more subtleties, uh, uh, subtle clues, I suppose, as as I suppose as opposed to direct revelations in the way we were talking about earlier. And I think about that a lot in the context of my own experience, because this is always an exercise in what it would take to get me over that hump and into whatever uh, group of faith I fit into. And I, I often wonder about what it is that I'm looking for. You know, am I looking for a physical person right in front of me to speak to me in the same way that we're speaking? Or are there more subtleties to which I should be more sensitive or more aware. And I think about this study in that context too. This study, we're half a year into it now and it's still going. And that's, I would say it's equal parts my own curiosity, but the other part is the obligation that all of you participating in it has created. You know, the reason I'm here every week is because you guys are here. And that itself is interesting to think about from my perspective. Like, why is that? Where did that come from? It just, kind of became my life a part of my life incidentally and through Robert and through the rest of you. And um, is there, is there more to that than just happenstance? I don't know. Is there reason behind that? So I appreciate uh, your thoughts on that and all of uh, all of the discussion on this. Cause I don't know. Those are the things I like to think about myself. What What's the reason behind stuff you take for granted, you know? Yeah. So, so thank you for the thoughts and for being a part of the discussion as well. Did you have anything else to say, Denby? Oh, uh, yeah. Just that uh, I, 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 yeah, I think I think you're exactly right, uh, Matt. Is that there's um, there are a lot of um, stumbling blocks that that we have. Like you know, the, what we the kind of experience that we think we should have. Mm-hmm. You know, like like again, like the like the idea that the road to, to Damascus moment is the way to experience it. And I was, um, that was a stumbling block for me for a long time, actually. Um, you know, I didn't know um, all the different ways that I could get into it, you know, that I could start to understand. You know, I, not that long ago, I was in exactly the position you're in now. And uh, like, so for example, when I started praying, I, you know, I, I didn't ask ever ask for anything. I didn't use any of the formulaic prayers. I just asked God to help me be better. Kind of like, you know, uh, calling down a well. And, you know, the echo is kind of the thing, except, of course, in, in, the, in, the, in, our, in the spiritual language, it's living water that you're sending your prayer into. And um, that helped me uh, to get a get a sense of God's presence, um, you know, in that quiet way. And so event, you know, now I, I, you know, I, I, I do a mixture of my own kind of unstructured prayer and formulaic prayers. But at first I, that was too um, closed off to me. You know, anyway, uh, yeah, that's uh, my two cents. Thank you for listening. Of course. Thank you for the thoughts. Um, we are at the top of the hour. Brian says he has one more comment. If you have time, Robert, unless you had any thoughts you wanted to add to that topic. No, I only want to clarify just for anyone who might be unfamiliar, the road to Damascus 
Denby is referring oh. to the Apostle Paul. He was persecuting Christians, literally killing Christians, and he's on his way to Damascus, and Jesus appears to him, right? And and it is this very kind of like spectacular vision, and that's when Paul becomes an apostle. Well, I mean, there's more to the story. We don't have time for that, but that's what Demi was talking about in case somebody was unfamiliar with that. Thank you for the clarification. Uh, Brian, did you want last word quickly? Yeah, I'll be quick. Um, in terms of the question of individual revelation from God, um, if you take the whole council of scripture into account, that the general, the general takeaway is that if you think God is talking to you, he's not. Um, there in Deuteronomy 18, he gives there there's a where they define a prophet. There's a basically a a, a revelation from God through a prophet is supposed to be falsifiable. It's supposed to be tested according, like, does it come to pass? And if it doesn't, then God didn't speak to that person. And throughout throughout the Old Testament, there are there are warnings against those who prophesy from their own imagination. Um and then, of course, Jesus warned that there will be many false Christs and false prophets. So that the 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 takeaway is that the the default should be if somebody comes to you claiming God spoke spoke to them and it's binding upon you, um, it, it's not unless proven otherwise. But um, you know, he's 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 given his general revelation of himself, like through Jesus Christ, through through the the verified apostles through the apostles themselves. I mean, sorry, the verified prophets, the apostles themselves, but in terms of, and if you're interested in hearing from God, we have all that. And if you've, if you've studied all that and exhausted it and, and you still think God needs to talk to you, then, then maybe he will. But if the, uh, the takeaway from the Bible is that he, we have a, a tendency to prophesy from our, from our own imagination that is it's more far more prevalent than than God actually speaking to people directly. But uh, anyway, that's all I got. Okay, thank you, Brian. Do you have any uh, additional thoughts, Robert? Just as maybe as a closing thought, I would I would like to say I guess people should be much more careful when with the phrasing you know God told me. But this is something that Christians do all the time. It is probably one of my biggest pet peeves. Uh, I never use that phrasing. Uh, God, God told me, you know, like people say, oh, God told me to buy this business. or God told me to do this, that, and the other. Um, and don't get me wrong. I will grant that sometimes maybe that may be the case. But you should always be mindful of who you're representing. Like if you say God told me this, you're representing God. And misrepresenting God it's kind of as bad as it gets for a sin. You know, it's it's actually number one, don't take my name in vain. Well, sorry, that's not number one. It's like number uh, <laughs> two or three. Now I can't remember. But at any rate, it's in the top three. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, you shall have no other gods before me. Okay, there you go. I did want to say that because I hope that gives people food for thought. It, that phrasing should be taken seriously. Okay. Uh, well, that will do it for tonight, guys. I will remind you we are off next week for the Thanksgiving holiday, but we will return uh, Saturday, December 3rd, as usual, 8 p.m. Eastern time. And as we pause for the holiday, I hope uh, the best holiday for both you and your families uh, and, of course, your friends. 
But uh, I want to say that uh, in the spirit of Thanksgiving, I am very thankful for this Bible study. We are about a half year in, and um, and it has been uh, a force for positivity and information in my life. So thanks for being a part of that, and thanks for sustaining it. And of course, thank you to you, Robert, for putting in the work each and every week to make it happen. Thank you. Have a good night. See you next time, guys.